This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today's episode is a special broadcast honoring the life and teaching of a warm and beautiful man, a true pioneer in the intersection between Western psychology and Eastern wisdom, John Wellwood. John Wellwood passed away in January of this year, 2019, at the age of 75. He was a clinical psychologist, a psychotherapist, a teacher, and the author of such groundbreaking books as Toward a Psychology of Awakening and Perfect Love, Imperfect Relationships. I have to say, his books and his teachings have greatly influenced me, and I feel a true debt of gratitude for the heart cells that John Wellwood exerted and put into his writing and his teaching. The recording that you're about to hear was originally broadcast as part of Sounds True's Psychotherapy and Spirituality online series, and it's an honor to have this chance to share this with you now on Insights at the Edge. The recording took place about 18 months ago, and during the session, I could tell at the time that John was weak, that he was suffering with an illness, but I could also feel his strong determination to teach and to share his great love and understanding of how psychological and spiritual work relate and amplify the growth potential in each. John, thank you for bravely paving the way for so many of us. John, welcome to the Psychotherapy and Spirituality Summit, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tammy. It's great to be here. All right. Psychotherapy in a spiritual context. Take it away. Okay. I'm going to start by talking about spiritual bypassing, since that's one of the things I'm noted for developing as an idea. Um, spiritual bypassing, you might say, is another a synonym for that would be premature transcendence. Trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace with it. So there's a tendency in spiritual practice today, although the notion of spiritual bypassing finally seems to be getting into the mainstream of the alternative stream. And more and more people are hip to that issue of, of 
of um, putting aside, disparaging one's humanness, one's human feelings, one's human problems. And my, my approach has been to sort of try to bring together the spiritual tradition, especially Buddhism, with our humanness. In order for them to become fully grounded in our culture, So, trying to move beyond our psychological and emotional issues by sidestepping them sets up a split between, you could say, the awakened part of us and the human part of us, the Buddha and the human. And it leads to a kind of conceptual one-sided spirituality where one pole of life is elevated at the expense of its absolute, at the expense of its opposite. Absolute truth is favored over relative truth. The impersonal is a favorite over the personal. Emptiness is given priority over form. Transcendence is valued higher than embodiment. And detachment is made, made more important than feeling. So one might, for example, try to practice non-attachment by dismissing one's need for love. But this only drives the need underground so it becomes unconsciously acted out in covert and harmful ways. So there's a lot of consequences of spiritual bypassing that divide the absolute and the relative, pit them against each other, and elevate one at the expense of the other, which is to diminish human life. So my view is that we're Buddhists becoming human, as well as humans waking up and as Buddhas. These are both the two sides of human consciousness and human existence. So I'd like to uh, present something I haven't presented much in uh, public before, which is something I call the psycho-spiritual architecture of samsara. The work I do these days, I call it embodied psycho-spiritual work. And uh, this, uh, we're going to get into that some, with, ex with some experiential practice later in the session here. But I want to lay out first the what I consider the, the psycho-spiritual architecture of samsara. Samsara here, just as a simple way to define it, is neurotic suffering. Unnecessary suffering, self-created suffering, and this is how we do it. This is the structure of it, which applies both to our psychological problems as well as our spiritual disconnection. So the first, the first part I want to lay out is the ground. I want to lay out three three sections here: the ground the ground, and then the wound, and then the false self that develops out of the wound. So the ground, the ground of being, is our natural openness, the natural openness of our awareness. You could call it the open, groundless ground of being. It's not a solid ground, it's the open ground. Open means empty. Spacious. 
It's filled with awareness. This is what we come in with. It's our nature. And our our goal as as spiritual practitioners to realize the natural openness of awareness, the open groundless ground of being. You could also call it basic goodness, as Chögyam Trungpa called it. And it's felt. It's not just a, a metaphysical idea I'm here presenting, but it's felt. It's felt. And it's felt as sensitivity. It's felt as rawness. It's felt as tenderness. It's felt as vulnerability. So it comes along with a certain predilection for anxiety. As soon as we talk about sensitivity, rawness, tenderness, and vulnerability, we're in the realm of anxiety-producing experiences. So the next layer, and these are like layers that are in this architecture, the next layer above the ground is basic existential anxiety. This is, this is uh, what the existentialists focused on quite a bit. That we don't essentially know who or what we are. And the, the ground is, the ground that we can encounter is just this, it's a groundless ground. It's a, no, it's a no-thingness. It's not something solid we can, we can do something with. There's nothing supporting us this is in that sense. So the next layer there is basic existential anxiety. This just comes with the territory of being a being who has access to the natural openness of awareness. And as far as we know, we, only human beings have this access. So it's our great gift and our great treasure. And it's also the source of all our pain. The next level that we encounter is what I call the basic no. We can't handle being so open and sensitive. We can't digest intense, overwhelming fear and anxiety. So what we do instead is we contract and disconnect from the openness. We tighten up and lose connection with our essential nature as openness. So the kind of basic dissociation that happens here, dissociation from the ground, and also starting to get a dissociation from our body. Dissociation, dissociation means connect, disconnection. So the loss of connection of our essential nature is openness. And it comes from the basic no. To the no is the no to pain or to threat. The no is to feeling so open and sensitive and vulnerable. And we can't digest that fear and anxiety as a child. So in our history, we have a contraction and a disconnection from our openness built in. So this is a... The next step that comes from this uh, upward is the basic existential wound. 
So out of the basic no, we contract, we disconnect, we dissociate from our body. And this leads to a sense of loss of being, loss of ground, loss of connection to source. Disconnection from the ground of our nature. That's the basic existential wound. This is something that so far, uh, all of these are things that the, the existentialists were very interested in. So it's not exactly a, a Western an Eastern presentation here, although it also applies to Buddhist spirituality, Buddhist spirituality which views the view, it views our nature as basically an empty openness. So the next level up is the relational one, the basic relational one. So on top of, what's interesting is that the openness is the ground of awakening, but it's also the ground of wounding. And those two kind of weave together. So the basic relational wound comes from Experience, now we're talking historically here in terms of child development. Historically, the child encounters the lack of a good holding environment. A holding environment is, is um, the name of a concept that was developed by Winnicott, who's a psychoanalyst, pediatrician. And he talked about the holding environment as the as the necessary formation for health as a child. And holding here doesn't mean physical holding, although it could include that. But it's more a sense of, uh, my sense of it is the two elements to a good holding environment for parents to provide for a child. And one is holding, uh, contact. And the other is space. In other words, the experience of parental love isn't complete unless there's a, ni a nice combination of contact and space. If parents just specializes in contact with love, it's going to lead to smothering the child or controlling them through love. Withholding love, if, if, so forth. Or if if a parent gives only space, it doesn't it doesn't the child doesn't feel loved. It feels abandoned, or it's just left to its own ways. So it's the combination of love and of, of contact and space that makes for a good holding environment. And very few, very few parents can actually provide that. And so the child doesn't feel seen. And the child also feels like there's some overall sense of problem. Something wrong with me. You know, there's a thing that happens with children that has been pointed out 
by various object relation theorists. But the, when the child meets the lack of a good holding environment and doesn't feel fully seen, loved, and met, and met with contact, loving emotional contact, and allowing generous space, and the, the child can't understand what there's something going wrong with the holding environment. And what happens is children pretty much always make it their own fault. The child cannot really understand why a parent is not providing unconditional love, which would be openness, complete openness, and to their being, and, and meeting that being. And so they actually feel met. That's the, that's the experiential proof that you're in the face, in the presence of unconditional love, is that you feel met. You feel seen. You feel that's the contact part. And you also let be. Letting be is, a, is the space part. So to the extent we don't have one or both of those, some people don't have to be there as a, as a childhood experience. But to the extent we don't have one or the other of those, contact is space. This is a relation, what we call the basic relational wound. Is the wound, I also call this the wound of the heart. And the wound part is that the child thinks it's their own fault. It's the only way a child can understand it. It's also too threatening for a child to to, to blame it on the parents. I'm not blaming, by the way. I think this is not a subject for blame because it's just that most people, there's no real good training for being a parent. Except doing it in the trenches of finding out by just being a parent. So it's not their fault. I'm not trying to blame anybody. But the child doesn't, it isn't really possible for the child to see to see that the problem is the, the parents, the problem is, from my point of view is that the parents didn't get this themselves. They didn't get a good holding environment either. And there's no training in unconditional love that's much value around for most people. So it's, it's, it's hit or miss, basically. And mostly it's miss. So the child, but the child tries to understand this by making themselves wrong, believing there's something wrong with you. I'm not being met, I'm not being seen, I'm not being loved for who I am because there's something wrong with me. This is the big relational wound that most of us suffer from in one way or another. So the, the ways that the next level up becomes the, what I call the deficient identity. So this, and the, the way the, that presents itself is, there's something wrong with me. I'm unworthy. I'm unloved and unlovable. I'm cut off from life. I'm not, I'm lacking, not enough. So it's all about lack. This wound, so the wound comes out of the, the relational wound comes out of the existential wound, which is the loss of being. And, uh, 
that you kind of weave together. It's very, it's very interesting. It's the um, out of openness you you get a, a you result in an existential wound and a relational wound. One is a relational wound is, is is worked with in healing by psychological work, and the existential wound is actually resolved or healed or worked on through any spiritual work. And they kind of weave together. And, and it's, it's part of why it's important to have both in our life, I think, in the West especially. So that's the wound. The wound includes a basic existential anxiety, the basic no, the basic existential wound, the loss of being, and the basic relational wound, and the deficient identity. This is the architecture I'm laying out. And going up to the, the results of this, continuing up the ladder of the psycho-spiritual architecture, is the false self. And the false self is an attempt to compensate for the wound and the deficient identity. So, so I basically, from the point of view of the deficient identity, I'm lacking. I'm not enough. I'm cut off from life. I'm unloved or unlovable. I'm unworthy. There's something wrong with me. And this leads us to an overall sense of lack. Something something is basically wrong with life. And we need to set it right. So we need to prove the next level up, false self, the compensatory, the comp- call it compensatory identity. We need to prove that we're good. We need to prove that we're lovable. We need to prove that we're worthy. We need to prove that we're a success. We need to prove that we can perform. We need to fill ourselves up with love, praise, achievement as proof of our worth. Which puts us on a roller coaster of hope and fear. Hope, when the roller coaster is going up the, up the roller coaster, is hope. And maybe I just published a new book. Or maybe I got on a radio show that I wanted to get on. Or maybe I got a great introduction from Tammy. My roller coaster of hope goes up. And and then I'm here I am talking about it. I'm not knowing how I feel about it. And a little fear creeps in. I hope it's okay. I hope that I'm living up to Tammy's expectations. I'm afraid I'm not. I'm driven to prove that I'm lovable, worthy of success, to fill myself up with love, praise, and achievement as proof of my worth. This is the universal, almost universal structure of the compensatory identity, which is at the peak of the architecture of samsara. The other thing that happens is Everything becomes self-referential. 
in our experience, we're, which means that we're constantly looking at experiences and input, input and states of mind that are are good. They're good for me. They make me feel more solid. They try to repair the wound of the deficient identity by filling it up with stories about ourselves and our world. So we're constantly spinning out mental stories that are self-referential. You notice this when you meditate, for example. You start to notice that your mind is constricted, continually projecting mind movies where everything, and we're the hero of the mind movie, and we're trying to make it good. We're trying to win win life over because we're lacking an internal, intrinsic sense of self-worth from the ground, which can only come from the ground. And how to find that in the ground is what spiritual practice is about in large part. That... So, but we notice when we meditate that the mind is continually constructing movies about what's happening. Oh, I'm, I'm, my mind is drifting off. Why does it keep drifting off? What's the matter with me that keeps drifting off? I must not be as good a meditator as all these people, it sounds true. Um, and so forth. keeps constructing stories that reinforce that sense of hope and fear which also reinforces the sense of I'm, I'm lacking and reinforces basically the deficient identity. So the problem with the roller coaster hope and fear is that it's always going to come down. There's not, there's not a steady up move on the roller coaster. It's up and down. So every success is met by some some problem, and uh, some threat of defeat. So maybe you get a, uh, a new house, but then you find out it has termites. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's always like this. It's like, that, that's not a problem. You know, basically we can get a termite inspector, but the problem of that I'm using the house to make myself feel better is, is, is what is, is, what is um, the problem here. And then when we use things, we use things in the world to feed, feed ourselves in the hope and fear way, it never leads to fear of a fear of failure. And we walk around with that fear of failure, that fear of lacking something. And pinning all our hopes on our attempts to compensate for that. Our life becomes an attempt to compensate for that. So this leads to a kind of another level of, of this, which is what I call mind mind spin. The busy spinning mind, the busy is constantly going getting carried away by trying to stay up in control to avoid going down on the roller coaster. But the nature, one of the things about the teaching of impermanence is 
that's very useful is to, to recognize that there's no up without a down. That it's inevitable for the roller coaster to come back down, and we need to be able to open to that experience as well, the, the dissolution of our hope, and so forth. So, so just to review, then, we have the ground, which is basic openness, natural openness of awareness. The ground that allows for awakening to happen. It is felt as sensitivity, rawness, tenderness, and vulnerability, which are threatening because that, that brings us a, a fear of groundlessness or a lack of, of any support, external support. And there's a, so there's a basic existential anxiety, and there's a basic no, which is the note of being threatened, feeling threatened, or painful, and contracting, disconnecting from the openness through contraction and tightening up, which leads also to a dissociation from the body. And then the, above that, there's the existential wound, basic existential wound, which is loss of being. How does that connect? Loss of dissociation is loss of being, loss of ground, loss of connection to source. Disconnection from the ground of our nature. The next level is basic relational wound. So historically, as a child, then there's a lack of a good holding environment, and not, the child does not feel seen and met, and, and makes up a story about it, or makes up an understanding about it that it's the child's fault. There's something wrong with me. Which leads to the deficient identity. I'm, uh, I'm an orderly. I'm, I'm something wrong with me. I'm unloved and unlovable. I'm cut off from life. I'm lacking, not enough. Which leads to the compensatory identity, the attempt to compensate for this deficiency, sense of deficiency. Puts us on the so the compensatory identity puts us on the roller coaster of hope and fear. Hope I'm out, I hope I'm okay. I'm afraid I'm not. I'm driven to prove that I'm lovable. I'm afraid that I'm not, etc. And mind movies where every, everything becomes centered around ourselves. This is the way in which you know. Often, some spiritual traditions, self-referential consciousness is, is criticized and. Made, you made to feel shameful about it, but I, I, the self-referential, self-referential. Once you understand the self-referential pattern as due to a wound, basically, it's basically a wound, and you wouldn't criticize it. You wouldn't say, "Oh, you people are so self-referential. You only think of yourself." It's true. We only think of ourselves, <laughs> but. It's a part of our wounding. If we relate to it that way, there's a chance of some compassion to come in. And I think this whole thing is full of compassion, places to, for compassion to come in at every level. And it's one of the great healing elements that we have in, the, in this world, which is loving kindness and compassion. That's why I'm doing laying this out, because I think it's important to 
understand what's going on in our samsara, in our unnecessary suffering, our self-created suffering. Our suffering is also self-referential. So we can, our mind movies are continually spearing out, spinning out stories about self and world, our world. And the mind spin, the busy spinning mind, is always spinning, 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 carried away, trying to stay up, trying to stay in control, trying to avoid going down. And that's the basic structure of the false self, the compensatory identity. So, I think to end, I'd like to end with an exercise. I just want to say something about uh, methods of uh, working with these problems that I just named. So I call myself, I call this Embodied psycho-spiritual work. And I, I find that there are five basic methods. These five methods just have, just have appeared to me. And there may be more others that are very essential, but these five, five, five methods feel very important in working with these issues. So I just want to name them, and then we're going to focus on one of them. So one of them, the first method, there's no, no, there's no order, no meaning to the order. That's just all. Present them just as is. There's engaged presence. What I mean by that is meeting your felt experience directly, bringing your presence to bear on your felt experience. And specifically on the, on the felt experience of pain, loss, self-centeredness, as we just saw, self-referentiality. doesn't matter what. Actually, that's part of it. Engaged presence. It, is, it doesn't matter what you encounter in your mind or your body or your feeling. It can be met with presence. So I call that actually unconditional presence. So unconditional presence is a, is a subset of engaged presence. It's a form of engaging with the experience directly. And then there's cutting through, number two, which is actually really the opposite of engaged presence. Cutting through is the ability to drop one's involvement in neurotic patterns. And so it doesn't matter that it seems like the opposite of engaged presence. They're, they're necessary for different situations. These are like a, this is like a little toolbox. And uh, meditation is actually a form of cutting through because when you notice that you're drifting off in thoughts and you come back to the breath, you're cutting through the thoughts and you're dropping them. You may come back again right away, but you can bring your mind back to the body or to the breath, to whatever your focus is, and cut through your involvement in the thinking process. It's carrying you away. That's an example of cutting through. 
And then the third, third kind of exercise or method is embodiment exercises. And uh, this is something that Reggie Ray focuses on quite a bit, inhabiting the body. And I, I do a lot of work with belly, heart, and head centers. So here we're talking about the subtle body, really. Subtle body being the lift body. So inhabiting it means actually making conscious one's life, the life of the body that one is inhabiting. So that really, that deals with the embodiment piece. And then there's inquiry. Four, number four would be inquiry. Another way I call, talk about that is track and unpack. In other words, look into your experience. Track it. Track what's going on. This is what psychotherapy therapists should be doing. They're not always doing this. But often a lot of psychotherapy is mental, directed from the mind. But inquiry is actually following the thread of the felt sense. Felt sense is a word that my teacher, Eugene Gendlin, the late Jinjin Jinlin um, taught about how to track a felt sense. And you do that by you just, oh, you feel it, first of all, in the body. And then you open to it but in a spirit of inquiry. You ask yourself something like, what is this? Where is, what is this? Oh. Where does this come from, or what's going on here? These are inquiry questions. And a good example of a method that Chenlin developed is focusing. It's all about tracking and unpacking. Unpacking means following the lead of different kinds of uh, psychological stress. And unpacking them, they're all, they're all basically get, everything gets conglomerated, and we can un, unconglomerate that by looking at different pieces of our experience without any preconception of where what it is or what it should be. So that's I call it open inquiry. Open, open inquiry is just um, following the lead of the felt sense. In other words. You might feel slightly queasy in your stomach. And you just bring your attention to bear on that. And you ask you basically ask ask the body what's going on in here. And uh, see what happens. Don't answer the question with your mind. The whole thing about inquiry is that it's we could say felt inquiry. You don't answer the, any of the questions with your mind. Jenlin said once a very interesting thing. He said, the only psychotherapy that works is when the client is I'm saying something they've never said before. So in other words, it's not coming from memory or expectation. It's coming from open inquiry, asking questions, and waiting for the body to respond. So that's number four. And number five is... Holding experience in loving awareness. So this is a little different from engaged presence. Engaged presence is focusing on the 
on the presence, bringing your presence to bear on experience, bringing all of yourself to bear on the experience. But the holding experience and loving awareness is just that. It's it's um, self-explanatory, really. But it depends on the ability to do this depends on being willing to feel the pain. If you feel the pain, then it's possible that compassion could be arise. If you don't, if you're not willing to feel the pain, then there's no compassion that's possible. Compassion means feeling with compassion. So that's the fifth one. So that's it. And we're going to practice, um, do a little practice with unconditional presence, I think. We have about 15 minutes left. So I'm going to lead you through a little exercise in unconditional presence, which is a form of what I call engaged presence. One of the methods. So, Let's start with you picking something to look at, looking at in your experience that's difficult. Something that's going on for you that's difficult or that's causing anxiety or fear in your life. It could be it doesn't have to be right this minute. Although it would be better if it were right this minute. But pick something like, the, like something you're afraid of or something that's causing you stress or Something that's difficult to deal with. I'll give you a little bit of time to just pick something to, to work on. So if you're picking a particular problem, then see how it feels in your body. See if you'd be willing to turn toward it. Normally we're turning away from anything that's stressful or difficult. But here, we're just making the turn and allow Basically, acknowledging that this is a feeling that you have in your body. So find the place in your body where you feel this, where you feel anything about this, and meet that, meet that place. And if it's something that seems to be an obstacle, turn toward that and feel that. If there's resistance, in your 
body with this problem situation brings up or is connected to. You don't have to know what you're doing. You're just trying this out. Instead of turning away from it, you're turning toward it. You're meeting it. And just see what it feels like to meet it, but to turn toward it. Instead of running away from it, which we usually do, or denying it. Just the act of turning toward it can actually feel liberating by itself. You know, you don't do this without preconception. It's okay whatever happens. Whatever comes up is okay. You can just acknowledge it and meet it. As it is. Without any goal or... Outcome. And then see what it's about. If you can do that, see what it's like. What is it like to turn toward it? What is it like to acknowledge it? What is it like to meet it? You know, it might be a little shaky. It might be some relief. It might be some threat. Nothing feeling. But you're basically turning toward it no matter what it is. That's the unconditional part. That's, that might be enough to do today, even, but I'm just just the first step of the unconditional presence. And to go a little further, see if you can now, if you're in touch with a feeling that kind of comes from the first step, see if you can allow it to be the way it is. Give it space. Let it be. Open up space around it. The essence of allowing is giving it space. Hold it in spacious awareness. Open up the space around it. And so, and when you do that, you start to soften. Because the other side of the most softest thing in the world is space. There's nothing softer than space. When you can hold the experience in spacious awareness, you're already starting to soften toward it. So just try that out in, in a very gentle way. Don't don't push anything. Don't try. If you have resistance, you can just stay with that. Keep turning toward it and resist, giving it space. Any of these steps, that might be enough to do. I'm going to go on and continue just to give you the whole picture. 
So if you if you feel like you've done enough, just stay with the stay with what you whatever stuff you you've managed to experience. So after allowing, so the first one is acknowledging. The second step is allowing, giving space. The third step is to open. Basically, to open your heart to your to your experience, such as yourself, where you feel whatever it is that you're dealing with here. This is a little more threatening. Opening to it. But it can also be softening, further softening. Bring down the barriers and opening. So that's pretty much all of the practice. There's one more step, which is more advanced step. So you may not want to do that today. You may just want to stay with whatever piece of this that has meant something to you. The fourth, the fifth, the fifth step. We have, we have the. I was just review. We have the first step was turning toward it. Second step was acknowledging and meeting it. Thirdly, thirdly allowing it, giving it space. Fourthly, opening your heart to the experience. And finally, fifthly, entering into it, entering into the experience. See if you can be one with this feeling without trying to do anything. See if you can enter into this in a sense of like, almost like surrendering to it. And again, if, you, if you're back in the earlier stages, just stay with those. If you can get a little sense of entering into the feeling, being one with it, that'll take you to another level. Okay, well, that's it. So I'm going to give you back to Tammy. It's been a pleasure and a joy to do this. Thank you, John. You've brought us and communicated at such a depth during this whole session. I really appreciate that. Great. I do have a question for you, which is that the sense I have is that you've laid out very clearly both this map of self-created suffering and also this toolbox that we can use but i'm curious if you could map for us what you see as the healing process 
the journey, if you will, to psycho-spiritual health, or I'm going to even throw this word out, enlightenment, how you see that journey, given that we have this map of uh, our self-created pain and these tools to use, what's the healing process like? Well, I'd say the spiritual dimension of the healing, which is also the existential issue, is the the relationship to the basic primordial openness. Um, so, making a relationship with primordial openness, which uh, you know, basically through meditation practice or other methods, but for me, it's been meditation practice, and that heals the relationship to the loss of being, the loss of the ground. So that that's that level, and then it's like basic psychological work is to address the relational wound because all psychological wounds are relational. They're all about not feeling loved or lovable. You know, it's such a tender thing. We all we all hide it away. You know, it's such a vulnerable thing to admit that we have this sense of lack of feeling loved and lovable. So healing that wound is a psychological work. And that wound help, help, happens in, the healing there happens in, in relationship mainly, not in retreat cabins, but in relationship to another person who's, who's a therapist and provides a good holding environment where there's a meeting the experience is met, and you can say we just had an experience of what it's like to have experience met through unconditional presence. And uh, at the same time, there's uh, some kind of space allowing the, the, the client to be be themselves, celebrating that. So that, that's the, the way toward healing the psychological aspect of the wound. And so... You can see that both sides of that work, the psychological work and the spiritual work, are necessary and important for complete human development. Well, you know, it's interesting to me that you answered the question that I asked by taking this sort of two-pronged approach. And what one of the things I'm curious about is how do you see the relationship between the spiritual healing work we do at the level of the existential wound, and then the relational healing work we do at this heart wound level. How do these two interact? Are they like separate channels that complement each other, or are they woven into some kind of unity in some way? That's a really good question, Tammy. Um, you know, I think it could be either way, because Someone could have done a lot of spiritual work, and they, but they're desperately necessary needing to do psychological work, and vice versa. You know, you'd want to, as a therapist, I want to assess where their their work is, the main work is, and uh, so it could be separate channels, or it could be woven completely woven together. It could go either way depending on where the client is at. Mm -hmm. Does that answer? Sounds well, like you have no question. Well, you left it kind of 
either or or both, it wasn't very definitive. Well, something's not definitive. No, I understand. It depends on depends on where someone's at. I I would say I, most people need both, but some people are not interested in spiritual work. So I guess you just send them elsewhere. I think one of the things in my own path and development was that I thought the spiritual work that I was doing would heal the relational wound. And right. I found that I needed a different approach, and that was uh, surprising to me. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, that's where a lot of spiritual bypassing comes in, is that it tries to do the work on a spiritual level that needs to be done on a psychological level, a relational level. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that in terms of healing this relational wound, that that's where the psychotherapist can provide the holding environment. What I'm curious about is, do you think that in relationships, and I know you've written a lot about relationships, that we can heal the relational wound in a certain kind of way through intimate partnership? And what does that look like? Yeah, you can, but it's... My experience is there needs to be other things as well, not just in your primary relational relationship. Um, what was the second part of your question? It's just, you know, outside of the psychotherapist's office, how do we heal the relational wound? That's kind of the core of my question. A lot of healing can be done in an intimate relationship. There's no question about that. I think to put the, the main burden of one's healing in that area doesn't quite work because it's it's also about relationships, intimate relationships about other things other than we're doing psychological work. And, uh, you know, so I'd say a certain amount can be done that way, but not completely. There's something about having, doing the work with someone who has no investment how you turn out, which is a therapist. There's no personal investment in you being a certain way. Whereas your partner in a relationship has a big investment in how you are and how you what goes on. So it's it's not as complete a, a crowd as the other is. And then, John, just one final question for you. You said something that moved me, that we're not just humans becoming Buddhas, but we're Buddhas becoming human. Right. Why would Buddhas want to become human? <laughs> I, I, I said that Buddha, Buddhas are waking, are waking up in human form. My sense of this planet is where it's a school. So there's certain lessons that are being learned by everybody. Everybody has different lessons to learn. And so for a Buddha to become fully embodied, he, needs to, he or she needs to come up against obstacles, problems, irre irreconcilable feelings, etc. 
It's all a school. So that's about becoming human. Becoming human means having access to more and more capacity to relate to experience. And to, and to meet the issues and problems that we meet and encounter. And so it's a, a fullness, a little fullness in that work. As we're seeing today, often the, the, the practitioners, spiritual practitioners who haven't dealt with their psychological issues and problems, uh, uh, leads to more and more kinds of problems. Uh, for example, the classic is problem of spirit, spiritual teachers who become abusive. Mm-hmm. to their students. They seem like they were such an advanced states of consciousness. But actually, when it comes to relationship, they fall down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but that's a... Hopefully that's a great learning for them on that path. They're needing, they're needing to really learn something about relationship. That's another way to look at it. Again, John, I want to thank you for bringing your depth and wisdom to the Psychotherapy and Spirituality Summit. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to a special broadcast of Insights at the Edge, honoring the recent passing at the age of 75 of pioneering psychologist and writer John Wellwood. Bless you, John, for your great insight and great love. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.